All right. So here we are, Acts chapter 9. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 9 today, and I want you to see something. Um, we're, we're, we normally will kind of go verse by verse by verse, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of that, but I, I, I kind of want you to see these are giving us some just big stories and big blocks that I want to put in place uh, to, to help us kind of understand what's happening. You know, we've just finished with the stories about Paul, how Paul got saved, sort of after his conversion, what happened. Now, Paul, we've left him, if you will, in Damascus. He's going to be there for about eight years before we pick him up again in a couple of chapters. And the story resumes with Peter sort of being the main figure at this point. But remember, that all of this comes under what happened when, when Luke writes Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says that this is a continuation. So Luke wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. And he says, Acts is a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, So you've got to have that in your mind. This is Jesus still working, but still working through the disciples. All right? Now, so let's read it together, starting in verse 32, and then we'll unpack what's happening here. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came uh, down also to the saints who lived at Leda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was, by the way, that means gazelle. Um, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Leto was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he, when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days, with one Simon, a tanner. Now, let me remind you of something. Uh, if you were here or if you weren't, weren't, back in Acts chapter 3, we read that how in these days the disciples were doing many signs and wonders. And we said it's interesting that the Bible often calls miracles signs. Okay, and we wanted to help like think that through, right? Because what is a sign? A sign has a reality of its own. Follow me here. Like I can go and I can touch a stop sign. There is a real thing called a stop sign. You can look at it. But what is that stop sign telling you? It's pointing to a greater reality. It's saying, don't look like, stop here. Like don't go any further. It's telling you there's this other thing you need to understand. Well, this is what's happening when we come to miracles, healings, these kind of, you know, uh, Tabitha being raised from the dead. All of these are signs. In other words, they really happened, but there is a reality that's broader than just the sign. You follow what I'm saying? So, so, so in other words, if this is just a, a story, if we get these little, little, there's this two kind of stories that go together. There's Aeneas and there's Tabitha. And if we hear those, the, 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 the moral of the story is not, hey, two people got healed. That's awesome. And I believe that. 
But if all it is is two people got healed, what we would get is, that's nice. That's really great for them that God did that for them. And it is. It's wonderful. But here's the thing you have to understand. The Bible isn't, hear me, mere history. Is it historical? Yes. Does it have history? Yes. Did these things happen? Absolutely. Did they happen the way the Bible said they happened? Yes. But it doesn't stop there. Right? It doesn't stop at the mere miracle. See, you, you're, you're all intelligent. You all know how to read. You don't need to come to me and say, Chris, what do, does verses 32 to 43 say? It looks like it's healing one person and raising another from the dead. Right. But more than that, right? In other words, if all it is is history, then it's good for them back then, but it means nothing for me right now. And what we want to know is what does it mean? And if these are signs, what do they point to? And what's the application for us? That's really what I want to talk about today, okay? So I, I, I want to think under that question of what, what are these signs pointing to? Where are they pointing? To whom do they point? All those kinds of things, okay? Okay. So let's start, let's start looking at it together. And the first thing I want you to see is that they point to healing power. Okay, now, I start with the most obvious because I, I, I want to make sure we don't miss this, right? Because I, I think if I say it's a sign to point something bigger than itself, then, oh, it's not healing. Well, no, it really is healing. Healing really did happen, and healing is available, right? If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Paul's going to say, dwells in you, he will give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. So, I mean, there really is the power of God is still available today. This is not just Old Testament and New Testament stuff. God still breaks through in surprising ways, right? In fact, let's say it this way. All healing, doesn't matter how it comes, all healing in one form or another can trace its causation, who caused it back to God. Doesn't matter. See, hear me, Christians, listen to me. It doesn't, a Christian view of healing is not this. We don't say when a miracle happens, you know, a limb grows, a blind eye sees, cancer's eradicated. We don't look at that and say when the miracle happens, then it's God. But when, but when it's a doctor that gives you medicine, it's medical technology. Right, you understand? It's God either way you slice it. Because the Bible is going to teach something that we would call, theologians call, common grace. That is, that God graciously gives gifts to humanity. He, and, he, and he does it sort of like, doesn't matter if you're a Christian, I'm just gonna be gracious to you. In fact, I'm gonna give you understanding of the human body so you can walk into a non-Christian doctor's office who has no recognition of God, but God in his common grace has given them the ability to look at your symptoms, listen to what's going on, diagnose it, and it's amazing, isn't it, that for like 95%, 98% of the problems we have, we can walk out and we're on our way to healing. That's a gift of God. That's God being gracious through medical technology. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear. That's the only way God heals. Because it's not. God still heals people miraculously. There was a woman sitting in our service at 10 a.m. over at Grand. Terminal, 
Like she was told, get ready to die. I, I, I kid you not. Like, like you have about a year left. Put your affairs in order. Have some fun with your family because you're going to die. And now she goes in the doctor's office and nobody said stop taking medicine. She still goes and does all this, but we have been praying for her diligently. And she goes in the doctor's office and what does she hear? The doctor looking and saying, you're no longer terminal. We've never seen this before. What's happening? What's the answer? God. God still does those things. So no wonder we get to a place like James chapter 5, verse 14, right? That says, is any of you sick? Any of you suffering? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray and anoint him with oil. And the prayer offered in faith will heal the sick person. The Lord will raise him up. We've had people come and say, please, can I have the elders come and pray for me and gather around me? And we've done that. Will God heal them? I don't know. But, but obviously it's still available or James wouldn't tell us to do that. So there, there is a healing power. Here's the thing I want you to hear. The healing, like, like Aeneas and Tabitha being heal, healed, it's, it's, it means more than physical healing, but it doesn't mean less. It doesn't mean less. Does that mean God's required to? No. A lot of people that will not be healed of illnesses. Every one of us is eventually going to die, right? Some illness is going to take us at one point or another. But God does that. God still does it. He does it. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He can do it when he feels like it. He can do it when, it when it suits the agenda that he has for that person and for the world. God is in the business, and I want you to see they point to healing power. But there's more here. Okay, now, now, that's, that's the sign I can touch, if you will, right? That's me going up to the stop sign and saying, look, there's a real thing called a stop sign. But now let's look beyond. Let's look beyond and say, what does it point to? What is it, what is it saying beyond that obvious part? What's the reality it's pointing to? And so let, let's keep going. Now, I, next thing I want you to see is they point to humanity's problem. And I want to kind of unpack this one and show you what I mean by humanity's problem. But here's what I want you to see. All of these healing miracles are living parables. They are illustrations of a greater truth. In fact, let me dare to say this, that the reason Paul writes and Peter writes and others in beyond the Gospels write the way they do is because they look back to these illustrations and say they are illustrating for us a, a spiritual reality. See, it's one thing for Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ Jesus. No one thing to say that. It's another thing to see it illustrated in an actual dead person raised to life. It's a one thing for Paul to say, Ephesians chapter 4, walk therefore in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's another thing for, for Peter to look at somebody and say, rise up and walk. I'm going to enable you to do what I call you to do. You see what I'm saying? These are bigger realities happening here. So now, how do they show us? How do they show us humanity's problem? What is it about humanity's problem that they show us? Now, let's, let's look at that a little bit. First thing I want you to see is that both Aeneas and Tabitha are unmistakably incurable. Did you pick this up? Right? What does it tell us about Aeneas? He found a man, verse 33, bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. This is not a sprained ankle yesterday. Right? This is, I cannot get up. I am incurable. He gets to Tabitha, and what do we find out? She got ill. She died. 
and now they've washed her body. These are people who know what deadness looked like. They're not duped into, oh, she fell asleep. They didn't know how to check pulses, that kind of thing. That's ridiculous. They know death when they see it. She's been dead there for a while. They're treating her the way that Jews and, and Gentiles would treat the bodies that way. And now they understand she's a dead person. It's incurable. We all understand that, right? You cannot go to a doctor's office and say, my, you know, my mom just died. Oh, I got a pill for that. Doesn't happen, right? Paralysis. There's no cure for that. I mean, it's, you, don't, you don't walk in and say, here's a quadriplegic or paraplegic, and we've got a pill that can cure that. That doesn't happen. These people, and especially living in the first century, they are unmistakably incurable. But that's the point. That's the whole point, is to paint for us, to show us through these physical, real illustrations help us to see this is a sign that we are incurable, that we are subject to great sin, that there are these things going on in our lives. Listen, without a great sickness, there is no great cure. Without great sin, there's no great God. I don't need to see the great grace of God unless first I see the great magnitude of my sin. That's the whole point. I can't cure myself. I can't get out from under this. And it's real. You understand, Jesus didn't come to save fake sinners. I'm just kind of a sinner. I'm not all that bad. No, that's why Paul said you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You could not walk in these ways. You were blinded. You were walking in darkness. All these kinds of metaphors saying this is your genuine spiritual state. Here's the question. Do you know that? Like, have you gotten to the, that gracious, wonderful place, I might add? This is not a downer. This is awesome that God would reveal to you that you have no hope apart from him, that you are incurable. Because if you're there, I am so glad I'm standing up here right now. This is the greatest day of my life. If you hear that and you respond to that and say, wait, wait a second, there's a cure? Yes, and it's Jesus. Because now you're in a position to actually receive something. Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Right? It's just, you, do, you will not taste. You will not know the sweetness of forgiveness and all the things that Christ offered. If you don't think it's that bitter, I don't really think I need forgiveness. I don't think I need to get up and walk. I feel like I'm already walking. That's not my spiritual state. I'm just fine. Then pretty much anything I have to say is going to feel like nonsense to you. Charles Spurgeon was preaching on this passage, and he says this, Oh, I am happy tonight. If anywhere in this house there is an Aeneas who is sick and knows that he's sick, who knows his disease is incurable, laments that he is palsied and can do nothing, and longs to be healed by divine power, he is the man who will welcome the glad news of the gospel of free grace. That's the idea. You're the ones, like you're the one. If you realize this isn't fake, this is really happening. I can't get out of this. I need to be cured. If you understand that you're unmistakably incurable, then you understand humanity's problem. This is our problem. And most people won't recognize that. But notice what else about humanity's problem is that neither Aeneas nor Tabitha took the initiative for their own healing. Isn't this interesting? They, 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 he, she's dead. She can't, right? 
notice how he says this. There, it, when Peter goes down to Leda, it says in verse 33, there he found a man. There's no indication in, in, Aeneas called out for him. There's no indication that he prayed. There's nothing like that. He's, he, somebody else's initiative is what causes it. Now, by the way, this is, there's a couple of truths I want you to see in this. First of all, that in the Bible, salvation is always spoken of as initiated by God, always. And, and here's the wonderful part about that. That means that God is not waiting for you to get your act together. God is not waiting even till you get your mind right to call out to him to save you. You understand the Bible is going to say that if you do that, it's because God has already been at work in your heart to bring you to that place. I'm going to bring you, I'm going to bring circumstances, events, all these things into your life to bring you to a place where you'll call upon the name of the Lord. Now listen, this is the story of Scripture from beginning to end. Like here's Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam and Eve are a picture and it's going to be picked up in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. It was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on to say that no human being decided to be born on their own, right? And it's the same thing spiritually John's going to say. You were not born of the will or of the flesh. You were born of God. Moses, I mean, Abraham. Abraham's a pagan moon worshiper out in modern day Iraq, Iran, somewhere around there. And God calls to him when he's not even looking. You've got you got Isaac and Jacob, same thing, not looking for God, and God makes a covenant with them. You've got Moses and the children of Egypt, and God reaches down to them and someone to rescue and bring you out. You've got Jesus who will stand up and say, you didn't choose me, I chose you first. No one, John chapter six, no one comes to, the comes to me unless the Father draws him first. He's making, he's drawing, he's bringing, he's doing it all. God takes the initiative. Listen, if you're feeling any sense of urgency in your heart that you're lost, that you're sick, that you're incurable, that is God being gracious to show himself to you so that you'll wake up and you'll call upon the name of the Lord. And if you do, Romans 10, you'll be saved. But God's already been at work in your heart doing that. See, that's the first thing I want you, but, but there's another part of this, the initiative that I want you to see. Salvation often results from intercession by others. You notice what happened when they found that Tabitha was dead and they found that Peter was nearby. It says his, I mean, the friends, it, it describes it in such a way like the friends all know she's dead. The friends know there's no responsiveness. There's no, there's no pulse in her. She's not breathing. All these things, they see no signs of life. So they don't say, man, I wish she would call for Peter. No, they say, let's you and I. You, understand, you know what intercession is? Intercession is when you go to God for me or when I go to God for you. So what do they do? They go to Peter. Now, Peter's not God. But remember, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, these people began to do and to teach what Jesus had already begun. So now, if you will, they stand in the place. You, Christian, we stand in the place of God to our world. And many times the world will come to you and say, please, please come pray for us. Why? Because somehow your, your prayers are more powerful. Well, they are if they're not Christians and you're a Christian. I, as a pastor, don't have more, more power than you when it comes to prayer. But the Bible does say, we just said it, James chapter 5, if anybody's sick, let them call for the elders, let them pray. 
And so what happens? They go to Peter and they say, please come. I want you to do something about this. That's a petition. That's an intercession for their friends on somebody else's behalf. Now, make no mistake about it. Peter's going to say, this doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus. But the, the principle still stands that there are times when God will urge prayer in you because he wants to save somebody else. You understand, God, God uses means to accomplish his ends. Does that make sense? Not, not just sort of, you know, God does what he does. Yes, there's times when God moves sovereignly without any permission or anything that we do at all. There's other times when he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move, but I'm going to put it on the hearts of my people to pray. I told you a few weeks ago, sometimes God does that when it comes to even revival. Why does revival come about? Because, because we were the initiators? No, God was the initiator. I'm going to, my spirit is going to blow when I want it to blow, but I'm going to put it on the hearts of my people to pray for others, to seek my face, and, and that's going to be the thing that brings about what I want to bring about. God does that when it comes to salvation. So listen, if God has burdened your heart, there's nowhere else that could come from. The enemy is not going to burden your heart to pray for somebody who, 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 who is lost. But God does. So what's that telling you? God, you must have something in mind. If, you, if you're urging me, if I feel a sorrow, if I, if I see this friend who is dead, who has no spiritual responsiveness at all, they're so far, it doesn't seem like they have any hope. They're without God. God, would you breathe life into them? You, only you can do it, right? Very often, that's how salvation happens. Okay, so, so this is their problem. They, 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 they're, they're unmistakably incurable. Notice that, God, that, 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 it's, that it's not they that took the initiative, but then notice finally they were both healed. Right, they're both healed. He picks up his bed, and unmistakably healed, I might add. I mean, here's a man whose legs have atrophied over the course of eight years. He's not used them. He's been bedridden. Now, get up. That means muscles, boom, came out. He was able to stand up. He was able to reach down, bend over, do all of the mechanics of that after having not used his frame in this way, roll up his bed and walk away. They walk into Tabitha. She's dead. Get up, walk out. She does it, unmistakably. C.S. Lewis calls these miracles of reversal. That is that they reverse the effects of the fall of sinfulness. Not because these people sinned. It's just showing that this is what it's going to look like when God reverses the fall. This is what happens. God comes to us when we're dead, when we're lame. Romans, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. To save us. To bring us to himself. Do you see this? Okay, now let me give you one last thing. So they point to healing power. They point to humanity's problem. <clears throat> and I want you to see they point to his provision. So, so look at verse 34. Peter says, look, look who did this. Jesus Christ heals you. Not me. I didn't heal you. I'm not the miracle uh, provider. It's Jesus. And what's the result? What does he want them to see? What happens as real? Peter doesn't get the praise. Verse 35, all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him and they turned the Lord. Look at verse 42, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
So God is doing something, right? That is that, it, the, the, and the praise that come to Peter, it points to provision of Christ. These healings become illustrations. They become, they become vehicles for the proclamation of the gospel. I can, again, I can only imagine that what would happen is when people would throng together, oh my gosh, look at this person who was just raised from the dead. Look at this. This person who is, we know to be, to be lame has now been healed and the gospel has come into Gentile territories. This is amazing what God is doing. Now, let me talk to you people. You see what happened to them physically? Where they were physically is where you are spiritually. And what has happened to them physically will happen to you spiritually. And proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God raises people from the dead. God gets rid of their sicknesses. God gets, takes their incurable sin and cures them in the righteousness of Christ. So it's his provision. But then look at this. They don't just point to his provision. They point to heaven's promise. In other words, what's happening here? A man gets healed. A woman gets raised from the dead. And the point of all this is is, um, it's like you get to look through a portal into another world. You get to look through and say, oh, there's something bigger. There's a sign happening. This is what it will look like when the king returns and sets all to rights. Isn't that interesting that that's one of the tropes out there in literature and in great movies, that when the rightful king returns to his rightful rule, what does he do? He puts all to rights, right? He vanquishes the, the, the wicked enemy. It's Aslan returning to Narnia and getting rid of the white witch where it's always winter and it's never Christmas and spring returns because the king is setting all to rights. That's the idea. Here he is putting everything back in order. Now listen, so when Jesus stands up and rebukes a storm, when Jesus, by the way, if you change one letter in, uh, in verse 40, when Peter says, Tabitha, arise, if that was said in Aramaic, Jesus went into the room and he said, Talitha, kuomi. One, one little word, to change the B to an L, and Peter's doing exactly what Jesus did. He's saying, Tabitha, kuomi. Arise, right? So, so when Jesus does that, when he raises this little girl to life, when he walks on water and he, to, to, to alleviate their fears, when he rebukes a storm, when he casts out demons, when he heals the sick, when he does all of these things, what is he doing? He's putting everything back in the order in which he created it. This is how it's supposed to be functioning. He's showing us what nature, listen, he's not overturning nature. You know why we think he's doing things like, wow, that doesn't happen. You're right. It doesn't happen in a world whose nature has been turned upside down by sin. But it happens perfectly in a world that was created by God to be perfect. There are no storms that wipe out people. There are no sicknesses that lead to death. There is no death or crying or any of those things. All those things are vanquished. What's happening then in these miracles of this this get up and walk and these miracles of get up and live? They're pointing forward to a time when the kingdom of God is fully present. And notice, I told you this before, 
that the, the, the apostles in Christ, there's never a time in their ministry when they do these sort of naked displays of power. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you, they're, they're never like superheroes, you know, and, 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 and they fly or laser beams come out of their eyes. Like, look how powerful I am, right? No, that never happens. What do you see instead? Every time this power comes from them, it's to alleviate human suffering every single time. Why? Because in the coming kingdom, there will be no suffering. There will be no depression. There will be no crying. There will be no sorrow. Like there, there will only be good things. There will be no sickness. There will be no demon possession. There will be no thirst. There will be no hunger. There will be no war. All those things exploded onto the scene when? When sin came to the world. When our first father and mother decided they knew better. Did God really say, don't eat that fruit? No, and we're going to do what we want to do. And what happens? It breaks us. It fractures us. We're ruined. And now we live in this upside down world. But listen, here's what you see. God says, I'm going to do something to fix this because I'm not happy with this world now. And now I don't like suffering more than you don't like suffering. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do everything. I'm, I'm not going to suspend the natural order. I'm going to put it back where I made it. I'm going to put it back the way that I created it. God through Christ, is turning everything else right side up. This is the portal. That's what I mean. When you look at these miracles, when you see a lame man walking, when you see a dead woman being raised from the dead, you're looking through a portal to a time when God is saying, this is what's going to happen. This will, everybody will live. Nobody will be sick. Everybody will run, leap, jump. No problems anymore. One theologian put it this way. The biblical miracles are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. I love that. We live in an unnatural world. It's demonized. You just sang a few minutes ago, though this world with devils filled, right? It is, it, is, it is wounded by sin. And Jesus Christ comes to turn it right side up. Now listen, that means if God is the enemy of suffering, then, then we Christians, we're supposed to be enemies of suffering. And not just we're just enemies of suffering, we actually want to advocate for, for human flourishing. So this is what all of us do. It doesn't matter what you do for a living, right? You could, you could be a mechanic. What are you doing as a car mechanic? You are reversing quite literally the effects of the fall that have caused that engine to break down. I want to help this family flourish in a car that actually functions for them. You're a teacher. You, you go to school and you, you actually help people so they can flourish in our world. You're a doctor. You minister to people's needs to help them so they can function normally, right? This is what I mean. We're out there doing this. We're alleviating pain. We're an extension of God's hand because he hates suffering and so we do what we can to alleviate suffering. Now, I want you to just see one last thing, and it's just a minor point, but I don't want to miss this. I think it's amazing that we actually hear that the names of these two people are Aeneas and Tabitha. And the reason I say that's amazing is not because they have some great meaning hidden to you because you don't speak Greek or something like that. The reason is this. We never hear from them again. There's nothing else in Scripture. There's nothing else outside of Scripture in early church history that names Tabitha or Dorcas, whatever they wanted to call her back then, or uh, names Aeneas. Now, why is that significant? 
Because here are two ordinary, very ordinary, real people living in a real world with real problems, with real names, and real families. And what do you see? God breaks through and he cares. And he doesn't just care emotionally. He breaks when he does something physically for them. So that's the message for us. God sees. God sees how sin is conquering your life. God sees how it's weighing you down. God sees that it's devastating, that you're incurable because of it. And he says, I'll deliver you. I'll help you. I have compassion. I, I long to be compassionate to you. I want to be gracious to you, the Bible says. And if you'll call upon him, he'll hear. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. Aeneas and Tabitha were healed. There's people in Scripture that are not healed. Paul himself may not have been healed of a disease. When he talks about the thorn in the side, we don't know what that is. Maybe it was a disease, but God didn't heal him. His companion Epaphroditus, God didn't heal him, but he did allow him to go through sickness, and finally he was raised up. I mean, he didn't give him miraculous healing. So, so, so the Bible's going to say, on the one hand, is everybody healed? And the Bible's going to say, no. Okay, now, hold that thought for a moment. It's going to say this, though, that everyone, now let's take the sign and look beyond it. And it's pointing to the spiritual reality of my sin and my brokenness and Christ's provision and heaven's promise and all these things to say in Romans chapter 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So spiritual healing will come to everybody. Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's available. There's not some qualifying mark in there like this is God opening your heart to believe and now you believe and because you believe and you call upon his name then, then you're saved but now here so we said on the one hand uh, will everybody save be, be, be healed we said no but if you're a Christian now hear me carefully can we say everybody will be healed yes now here's what I mean like there's coming a day right we'll all die there's coming a day when every lame person that doesn't get healed in this life will be healed perfectly. When every person ridden by cancer will be healed perfectly. When every person who's lost a limb healed perfectly. Every healing, every person who suffers from depression or anxiety or a broken marriage or any of those things, all of it, things beyond your wildest dreams, every single one of those things you hope for turned right side up, and now it's perfect. So we all be healed in this life? No. But we'll all be healed? Yes. If you're in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises. Thank you for these wonderful truths that we can hold on to as believers. And I just pray, God, I pray right now that that would encourage the hearts of us who name the name of Christ, who say that, Jesus, you are my treasure, you, you are the sun around which I orbit, that, God, that would give us great hope that no matter the anxieties, the emotional issues we struggle with, the, the physical problems that we're carrying with us even right now in this room, every single one of them, because we're in you, will be healed ultimately. But, God, I also pray for people in this room that Maybe today's the day, God. Maybe they've heard the gospel a thousand times. Maybe it feels like it's brand new because today's the day they realize that they have an incurable problem called sin that they'll never eradicate on their own. They, there is no medicine for it. There's no other religion that can cure it. And it's only gonna come 
through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that today would be the day that they would call upon the name of the Lord and they would be saved, God. How awesome would that be? That, God, they would, they would be so thirsty sitting here, so hungry for what you have, and you would grant them the satisfaction of their thirst and their hunger through Jesus Christ. God, do that today. Open their eyes, open their ears, and stop their ears, pull out the heart of, of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Do the kind of spiritual surgery and miracle that you can do. God, as much as we long for people, even in this room, to be physically healed, God, we long ultimately for spiritual healing, spiritual salvation. So do that today, I pray. We love you. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.